0: hello and welcome to extra innings from the ballpark a podcast from the u.s. center here at the london school of economics i'm denise Barron, and this is the third and final of a three-part series a very special three-part series which has sort of been like summer school but so much more fun You usually have to be here in London to gain access to the public lectures that the U.S. Center organizes, but with this series, we've been bringing the academics to you, wherever you might be. This lecture from Professor Kathy Kramer is about the politics of rural resentment.
1: So I guess everybody's ready to start because you've just like quieted down. And so normally we like let it run for a couple of minutes to let stragglers in, but so I'd, I'd like speaking of. Uh...
0: So to kick things off, we'll hear from Professor Peter Trubowitz, director of the LSE U.S. Center.
1: I'd, I'd like to welcome uh, everyone uh, here this evening. Uh, my name's Peter Trubowitz. Uh, I'm the head of the International Relations Department and the director of the US Center here at the LSC, which is sponsoring um, tonight's um, lecture by Professor uh, Kathy Kramer. Um, professor Kramer is a uh, professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and also the director of the um, uh, Morgridge Center uh, for Public Service there. She's also uh, a leading scholar of race, public opinion, and uh, rural America. She's published widely um, in these areas of uh, research, uh, lots of many, many uh, journal articles, um, and also uh, three very um, well-received books um, talking about politics in formal groups and social identity in American life with the University of Chicago Press, talking about race, community dialogues, and the politics of difference, also with the University of Chicago Press, and her most recent book, uh, which she's going to be drawing on uh, tonight, The Politics of uh, Resentment, Rural Consciousness uh, in Wisconsin, uh, and the Rise of uh, Scott Walker also with the University of Chicago Press. So what's with, like, the University of Chicago Press? If you do American politics, it doesn't get any better than publishing in the University of Chicago Press. Um, uh, Professor Kramer is also an uh, um, award-winning teacher, having won multiple awards uh, at the uh, University of Wisconsin. She's also a native... Are you guys called like Wisconians?
2: Wisconsinites.
1: Wisconsinites. I should know. Or I mean heads. I know it's like cheese and it's the Green Bay Packers, because I'm a Giants fan. Um anyway, she received her PhD from uh from Madison and also she did uh her um bachelors there. So we really have um the real McCoy here this evening. Um we invited uh Kathy I think we were just talking about it. I think I invited her like la- this time last year, May, at most June, uh, to talk about her most recent book, um, The Politics of Resentment, because it was very clear to me, as it was to uh, a number of other people, we just got in you know, uh, our bed early, that uh, in our business, it's rare that somebody um, publishes a book that so clearly and incisively anticipates um, uh, events that are um, uh, about to unfold uh, as she did namely the rural backlash uh, that helped put Donald Trump over the the top uh, in the two thousand and sixteen election and you know rural resentment of course is an uh, enormous a topic of enormous importance in the United States but it's also true on this side of the pond where rural urban and core periphery uh, divides uh, latent for so long have just come crashing to the surface uh, in the UK, but also in in, in France and elsewhere. Um, tonight's talk, uh, the title is "The Politics of Resentment in the 2016 U.S. Presidential Election." The suggested hashtag is #LSCUSelects. Uh, if you haven't already, please turn your uh, phone to um, silent and please join me in welcoming Kathy Kramer.
2: so much can you hear me I'm not sure if this is on is it okay okay great well thank you for having me Peter and Sophie and Barnaby thanks for your help um, it's really an honor to be here it's great to be in London and I'm really looking forward to the conversations after I talk at you because I know that I have a lot to learn about what's going on in the UK and I think we do have some similarities don't we and before I forget, I want to also acknowledge my dear friend, Ben Toff, who is with us this evening. Ben is a former student at uh, Wisconsin and is now at the Reuters Institute at Oxford for a year, and then he'll be joining the faculty at the University of Minnesota. But all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into <laughs> the book I'm talking about today, uh, many of them were shed by Ben. <laughs> so Ben did a lot of the work um, to make my book possible. So thank you for being here. and. I just, yes, thank you. (laughs) So the topic I'm going to be talking with you about is not very uplifting. I'm going to acknowledge that right now. I'm going to try to tell you a few jokes along the way (laughs) to lighten it up. Um, But basically what I'd like to do is just explain my study, explain how I did it, because it's partly, um, it's very important for understanding why I learned what I did. And then I'm going to talk uh, briefly about um, Wisconsin in particular and how the resentment I heard played out for Wisconsin politics, but then also talk about the 2016 presidential election, and then we can go from there. I have some implications at the end, but I'm very eager to hear um, the relevance that you see in the in the viewpoints that I'm going to share with you. So, pardon me, I'm just going to grab the clicker. Um, I'm going to start off with two two basic things that we're pretty sure we know as political scientists. And one is that, and not just political scientists, but social scientists and and people observing the world in general know this pretty much to be true that economic inequality in the US and other industrialized democracies has skyrocketed since the 70s, and primarily because uh, Mm -hmm. the top income earners, their incomes have increased at an exponential rate. These charts are not made by me. Uh, If you Google economic inequality, various scholars have documented growing inequality In a variety of ways, they're all showing the same thing, that just since the 70s, it is the top income earners whose income has gone up, and pretty much everybody else has kind of been stable. So that's one thing we know pretty much to be true. Another thing we increasingly know among political scientists is that policy responsiveness in the US at the federal level and also increasingly we know at the state level is only responsive to the very wealthiest and not really responsive to middle-income earners or low-income earners at all. These charts are um, photographed from a book that came out by Larry Bartels in the mid-2000s, and he's since done a second edition of the book. It's called Unequal Democracy, and it was one of the first documentations of this phenomenon of, if you look, um, these, and these bars basically represent the level of responsiveness. If you look at low-income earners, it looks like our <laughs> Our federal legislature, Congress, is not at all responding to their preferences. Middle income earners, somewhat. Top income earners, quite a bit more. And then you might say, well, maybe um, the Democratic Party, the more left-leaning party in the US, is more responsive to people across the board. And Larry showed then, actually, no. When you divide it up by parties, the lighter bars, the Democratic left-leaning party, same thing, same dynamic. I mean, a little bit better, uh, or a little worse, or a little less than worse with respect to upper-income earners, but here we have this situation in which economic inequality is increasing, but it looks like we continue to vote in people who aren't doing anything about it, right, that are basically responding to the preferences of the very wealthy, wealthiest. So that's puzzling, but it's, it's yes, it's puzzling. Why is it then that people aren't voting for more redistribution in terms of who they're electing into office, presidential and, and congressional level too. Um, that's sort of the puzzle I started with at the beginning of this study. And um, I really, it, it, it's a troubling phenomenon in democracy in the U, in the US and other countries as well. But I also find it troubling within the study of public opinion that oftentimes when we look at these two facts, we say, um, how can people be so stupid, right? This is a nicer way of putting it. We, you know, People are voting against their interests, presumably, but oftentimes, yes, we say, but you know, how can people be so, so foolish? Well, where I start from is not with the question, what are people getting wrong, or how can people be so stupid, but instead with the question, how are people understanding their world? Because I think that when you understand people's perspectives, through which they're interpreting politics, you can understand so much better why they're making the choices that they are. So back in 2007, and here I'm just showing you North America so I can point out where Wisconsin is, no reason why you would know. But Wisconsin is what's known as a Great Lakes state, and it's an upper Midwestern state. Here and maybe in the 2016 presidential election returns, it's become a little bit more familiar to a lot of people. But there's Wisconsin right there. What I did back in 2007 was to carve up this state, this is Wisconsin, into a bunch of different regions depending on political leanings, demographics, economics, um, uh, type of agriculture, type of industry, and then I sampled communities in each of these regions, a big place and then a smaller place, and then I chose a bunch more additional places because at that point in my career, I knew that the thing I was really fascinated in was political understanding and how people view the political world, what lenses they're using to view the political world. And to study that, there was no better way for me to get at it than to listen to people talk, to people that they normally talk to in the places that they normally hang out in. So I knew that I wanted to sample communities throughout the state and find groups of people, groups of regulars meeting and invite myself into the conversations. Back in 2007, I wasn't looking for a rural versus urban divide. I quite naively, now I can say that, did not know it existed, even though I've lived in Wisconsin for a good part of my life. Instead, I was interested in how social class identity (coughs) matters for the way people interpret politics. So once I had sampled these 27 communities, I called up a local newspaper editor or a member of the University Extension Service, which is basically an arm of the state university system in which there are people in, living in each of the 72 counties in the state. Anyway, those folks, newspaper editors, know their communities really well. And so I was able to call up and say, you know, where in such and such Wisconsin do people go on a normal basis that I could get access to, that I could just walk in and say, hi, I'm Kathy. Can I talk with you? Can I listen to you? And they sent me to places like this. This is just a series of photographs of some of the different places I visited: diners, restaurants, in a lot of small communities, gas stations or service stations, because it's really the only place where you can—it's not a private place—and there's some kind of beverage being served, and <laughs> coffee, not not necessarily alcohol, in the morning. But um, typically, these were places where people were gathering together over some kind of food or drink to visit with one another. When I had, that, that's a loom. That's just because I think it's cute. <laughs> you encounter a lot of things like that in Wisconsin. It's a long story. There's a big fiberglass factory in a town that makes a lot of these large creatures. And I have a series of photographs I collected along the way. Anyway, back in 2007, say, for example, someone had said, OK, in such and such Wisconsin, there's, at 5.30 AM, there's a group of people who meet every morning over coffee. They'll be there to show up. And so I would drive out from Madison in my foreign-made car, which that'll become more clear later why that's so important, and um, take a deep breath and walk in and say, hi, I'm Kathy from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Do you mind if I join you this morning? Yes. (laughs) They would laugh. They would laugh. I mean, they would say, sure, we have nothing better to do <laughs> why not and they they look at me like I was a little bit nuts but they were curious you know what what is this all about and then I would give them a business card that said I was a political scientist at the university It was my contact information and then I gave them a small token of my appreciation like a pen or a pad of post-it notes or a football U.S. football schedule um, it's just something that was saying thank you for giving me your time And then I said, uh, do you mind if I turn on my recorder? I had a digital recorder. Typically people didn't mind. Just a few of the groups um, over time have. And then um, I would say, what are your big concerns in this community? And we would go from there. And most of these groups I've been back to multiple times, some two times, um, some now as many as I've lost count in the last few months, but six or seven times um, between 2007 and 2012 was the bulk of the work for the book that I wrote. But when uh, my book came out, I also wanted to revisit these groups and give them a copy in person. And like everyone else in the world, I was super curious about the presidential election. And so I've been back to many of these groups in the past year or so. But here's what I found. Um, here's what I heard about a year in to the conversations, I wasn't looking for a rural versus urban divide, but about a year in visiting, it ended up being 39 groups across these 27 communities. It was undeniable that in the smaller places there was this very pervasive, intense resentment toward the cities. And here's what it sounded like. For one thing, um, Wisconsin here's now with some cities plotted on it, has two main cities to it. Madison is the state capital, and it's also where University of Wisconsin-Madison is this flagship public university. And then Milwaukee is the main urban center, in the, I mean, urban uh, 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 industrial center in the state. And the, the metro areas kind of span this part of the state, and this in Chicago is right here. So this part of the state is pretty urban, pretty metro. The other cities or places on the state, um, are more medium-sized cities, so 50,000, 80,000 people, not large places in in the scheme of things, but in Wisconsin, um, the most of the population is here. And people in these smaller communities had a map of the state that they would describe to me. They would basically say, see, there's Madison and Milwaukee, and then there's the rest of us. And they even had nicknames for Madison and Milwaukee. Sometimes they called them the M&Ms, which is a kind of candy, I don't know if... You have it here, it's not its not great chocolate, but very popular. Um, and they would say things like, look, you all think when you get up to say Wausau that you think you're in northern Wisconsin. Well, if Wausau is northern Wisconsin, then what's Ashland, they would say. Ashland just feels completely ignored, totally off the map. So partly people were describing their sense of, you all in the cities have this map of the world, and we aren't anywhere on it, right? But there was so much more to their resentment, though. And basically, what they were telling me is, we don't get our fair share of attention, we don't get our fair share of resources, and we don't get our fair share of respect. So in a little bit more detail. Partly what they were saying was, Madison is where all the decisions on state policy are made, and they're communicated outward to the rest of us. And we don't have a say in how those decisions are made. There's little listening going on in reverse. And they had a similar story about D.C., they were also saying, um, our taxpayer dollars basically sucked in by Madison, the state capital, spent on Madison or on Milwaukee and not on our communities in return. Their perception was, we pay really high taxes and our communities don't see that money. And then finally, that was their sentiments with respect to respect. They were saying, look. It seems to us that all the decisions are made in the cities by these folks who don't know us, aren't familiar with our communities, don't understand us, and they don't actually even like us. They think we're uneducated, unsophisticated, sexist, racist, Islamophobic, homophobic. Those are my terms to describe the conversations, but they were saying, you know, they don't even like us. Well... That is what I mean in my social science term of rural consciousness it 's this combined identity as a rural person um, combined with this sense of injustice, this sense of resentment, right this sense that i 'm not getting what I deserve i 'm not getting my fair share and feeling as though something is off so again it's the, that lack of uh, tension, that lack of um, money or public resources, and the lack of respect that 's to me, that was interesting in and of itself, and the many layers to it was pretty remarkable to me, meaning just in, in this resentment, you have this sense of you know, being against cities and people living there, but then there's, there's so much more to it, right? So partly they're talking about elites, me, people like me, people working at the university, um, public employees whom they perceived as having it really good compared to folks who didn't have a pension or didn't have health care insurance. But they're also talking about racial minorities, right, people of color. In these conversations, sometimes when racism comes up, they're talking about Native Americans who are much more likely to be the racial minority that they have uh, day-to-day familiarity with. There's 11 Native American reservations in Wisconsin, primarily in the northern part. Um, But sometimes when they're talking about those people in the cities. It's, they're definitely talking about racial minorities and their perceptions of, say, who's who's receiving welfare benefits or not. But when when their resentment when they're expressing resentment toward the cities, these different aspects of of city dwellers come into play. So you can ignite one part of it, and the others become meaningful or relevant to the to the policy debate at hand. And then there's also this our partisan divide in the US. And so now, increasingly, we have layered on this rural versus urban divide, Democrat-Republican divide. Well, here's how it mattered for politics, as I understand it. In one respect, this resentment, I mean, it is itself a kind of carving up of us versus them. It's this sense of someone, some force, some group has done wrong to me, to have me get less than I deserve, right? It also is, uh, in many respects, about people's perceptions of deservingness and who in the population deserves public support, who deserves public money. And oftentimes, those conversations are about hard work and their sense of who works hard in the population. So, one thing that came up often as I'm driving out around the state in my Volkswagen Jetta as a public employee, people would say to me, You know, so how is your health care plan? and i'd say, you know, as a state employee, we do have health care insurance, it's pretty decent. And they'd say, you know, i can i haven't been to a dentist in over a decade or i haven't, you know, i haven't had health care insurance my entire life. And they were saying to me, how can this be fair that i am asked to pay taxes so that you, Kathy and other public employees can have health care and a pension? and I can't even afford my own. So sometimes their sense of injustice was, was translated in those terms. And, and um, another way in which this resentment really sets the stage for very divisive political messages is with respect to um, their sense that if you look around our communities in these rural communities, that something has, has gone wrong, right? Our kids aren't coming back. They go away to college and they don't return. There's no jobs here. Our farms are different, disappearing. Our shops on the main street are no longer there. Just in many different respects, they feel as though, you know, it it used to be possible to live in a place like this and have a good quality of life, and it's no longer possible for many of these folks. Part of that too is the act of looking around at the world and seeing that things are different whether we're talking about cultural diversity in the United States or just the sense of how people communicate um, and, and um, where the types of jobs available to them, there's a sense that it used to be the case that being a working class white person meant you were gonna have an okay life and that's no longer a guarantee. And so there's this underlying, all of this is this sense of, uh, sense of status anxiety or status threat which, again, is fertile ground for someone to come in and say, you're right, you're right, you do deserve more, and things have changed. It also sets the stage for someone to say, you're right, politics is extremely broken, and there's a need for a massive change. We need to basically overhaul government and do things drastically differently. And at the same time, is just that simple message of politics is broken is a sense that government is an urban thing. So for many people, even though there's public employees living throughout the state, roughly 10% of the um, the workforce in any of these communities is made up of public employees, either local level, county, state, or federal. Um, there's a sense that the way those folks do their jobs is driven by urban decisions. So take, for example, public school teachers. Those folks live right in these communities, but people were telling me, "Yeah, but you know, that their decisions about what they're going to teach or what courses they're going to offer, those are driven by Madison. They're driven by decisions made down at the state capitol. So not only is there a sense that politics is broken, but there's a sense that government is this urban thing run by people who don't understand our concerns. So then we had Scott Walker, who ran for governor of the state of Wisconsin in 2010. And one way he made use of this resentment was very much with respect to public employees. He, once he got into office, he passed a, he proposed, and and it was passed later on, legislation known as Act 10, which was a a budget repair bill that basically eliminated collective bargaining for most public employee unions and also required public employees to pay in quite a bit more to their pensions and their health care benefits. And these protests, are what resulted. It was a very, very divisive policy. It led to a recall election, which he survived. He was the first governor to ever do so in U.S. history, and he's also since been reelected once. Um, But it was a very divisive uh, policy, but it was effective because to roughly half the population was saying, in response to his messages, "You, you get it. You hear what we've been saying. And what he was saying was, you're right to be so upset. Things are broken. There are some people getting way more than they deserve, and you do deserve more. And basically what he was saying is public employees are the haves, and private employees are the have-nots. And we need to restrict public employees. We need to ask them to pay in. We need to not ask them, but we need to demand that they pay more into the pot as opposed to getting this, this these sweet benefits that they've been getting. There's uh, one other way that uh, Scott Walker tapped into the rural versus urban divide that I found really striking, and that was through um, a federal allocation for a high-speed train line between Madison and Milwaukee. If you've ever visited the U.S., you know that there's a serious lack of trains <laughs> in the U.S. It's such a contrast to traveling here on the continent, right? Well, there was a time when we were going to have a high-speed train line between Madison and Milwaukee, the big two big population centers, The previous governor had um, uh, fought for and um, been given uh, an allocation of 810 federal dollars for the train, and when Scott Walker ran for um, governor, he said, look, if I'm elected, I'm not gonna take this money because this is hard-earned taxpayer money that's not going to go to fix the roads that go up to small town so-and-so and and small town so-and-so, but instead it's only going to affect those two areas. And so he held it up as an issue of, I stand for you all, you real Wisconsinites, not for those people in the cities, which was remarkable because at the time he was Milwaukee County executive, which is a whole other interesting story. But let's move on to Donald Trump. So, yes, sorry. Maybe I should refrain from showing his image. just so <laughs> sorry, that notes can disturb a lot of people. So Donald Trump. Here is how I interpret how he tapped into these sentiments. To go back to the divisive messages but um, birtherism, right, to begin with. Years ago, before he was running for president, this notion that the, the sitting president of the United States was not actually a US citizen tapped into this sense um, of status anxiety among a lot of folks, um, especially a lot of white folks who We're wondering what's going on in the world that the the U.S. president can be a person of color. Um, That's not all that that debate was about, but it it resonated with people who had an anxiety about the cultural changes that they're noticing in the U.S. Another way that he's tapped into it, obviously, is with the anti-immigrant sentiment, um, the notion of building a wall, of keeping certain types of people out, Taps into, you know, people's concern that um, there are some people in the population who are getting more attention than they should be, maybe more public resources than they should be, and we aren't getting what we deserve. We're hardworking Americans. How can it be that we're not getting what we need to get ahead? Another way um, that he tapped into these sentiments was through his rapid, you know, his call for rapid change, the, the slogan of draining the swamp, or doing things drastically differently in D.C., right? Bringing in people who aren't from the D.C. establishment was part of that appeal. Another one was talking about Hillary Clinton, his opponent, when you know the the chance of lock her up at his campaign rallies also tapped into this this sentiment that whoever is in charge is not listening to people like us. They're not paying attention to people in communities like ours, to people like us. And so in the end, you know, Hillary Clinton was a great foil for that kind of argument that you're right, things are broken. We need people in there who are completely different than whoever's been running the show for the past few decades. And finally, with respect to kind of status anxiety, that notion of making America great again, in my mind, very much taps into that, that sense that there was a time when the, the nature of things was had a, a better order to it or there were a, there was a better way we had a better quality of life and now um, that seems to have, 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 for many people have changed pretty drastically so then we get to the question of um, you know what do we do now um, and before as I've gone along I've I, I've been a little bit remiss in not sharing with you in their own words what these sentiments sounded like, so I want to give you just a few examples before I wind up here with some implications. To um, to backtrack a bit and talk about just what rural consciousness sounded like, I want to just share with you some brief conversations. Um, I'll share just two brief conversations, and and the first one is among a group of women... Who Some of them are retired, some of them are working, and they're meeting in the far uh, northwest corner of the state in a, in a tourist community. They get together once a week um, over breakfast, basically, to, to visit with one another. And I'm asking them, this is back in the mid-2000s, I think 2008, I'm asking them their attitudes about the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And the, the names I'll use are I've made up, but uh, Teresa says... As a former educator, she's a former public school teacher, she said, I resented highly comments such as, there is no education north of Highway 8, which is uh, an east-west highway that runs about through the northern third of the state. She said, these kids, we send them such absolutely excellent and well-prepared students. The attitude that we are the Hick area of the state was painful, Hick, uh, like country, country bumpkin area of the state. And I asked her, so where did you get that from? From recruiters? And she said, well, from professors. And I said, really? When, when they would visit? Or... And she said, yeah, or publish in newspaper articles or other, you know. And that was a little distressful because I think northern Wisconsin feels um, a little far away from Madison anyway. And we keep waving our hands and saying, yoo-hoo, there's another half of a state up here. Up north is not Wausau, that city in the center of the state that I pointed out. Here's another example, a different group of women. Um, these, some of these are stay-at-home moms, some retirees, some people working, but this is in a tiny, tiny community in the middle of the state, and um, they meet in the basement of a church once a week because there's actually no gas station in this community, so the church is kind of the place where people gather. And I'm asking about the university again, and Martha says, or I say, what do you think the University of Wisconsin-Madison does not do well? When you think about it, Martha says, represents our area. I mean, we're like, we're strange to Madison. They want us to do everything from Madison's laws and the way they do things, but we totally live differently than the city people live. So they need to think more rural instead of all this city area. And Donna says, we can't afford to educate our children like they can in the cities. Simple as that. We just don't have the advantages. Ethel says, all the things they do based on Madison and Milwaukee, never us. And Martha says, Yeah, we don't have the advantages that they give their local people there, I think, a lot of times. And it's probably because they don't understand how rural people live and what we deal with and our problems. So to try to lighten the mood a tiny bit, I'm going to give you one more example that I think is kind of funny. So, and it's probably, this is one of the the more humorous conversations I came across, but I share this example with you because all of what I said is pretty sobering. But I think it's really important to understand that here I am, this academic from Madison, driving out in my Volkswagen Jetta. And so I walk into these groups, and a lot of times I represent what they are resenting, right? In many ways, I'm just a symbolic representation of this dynamic, and my experience with these folks was a delightful one, I have to say. They were kind and funny and compassionate and warm and welcoming. And that is a really important part of this story, too. So a lot of times when they're telling me how much they're mad and Madison, resentful, angry toward it, they're telling me in jokes like the following. So this is a community, again, in the center of the state, very small town. It's a county seat, actually. It's one of the lowest-income states uh, counties in the state. And this group, um, they play dice every morning. They play a dice game. And the first time I went to visit with them, they stopped playing dice while uh, they talked with me. And at the end of the 45 minutes we were visiting, they basically said, look, if you want to come back, you have to bring your money and gamble with us or we're not going to talk with you. And so I did. And then on my third visit, I was gambling with them and winning over yeah, over and over. But I'll come back to that. Also, on this day, there's a horse auction going on in town. And they're asking me, um, have I been to the horse auction? So Henry says, why don't you buy one of them horses? I've got a trailer. And I say, well, I'm not sure where I would keep him because they know that I live in one of the cities. I live in Madison. I have a very small lot. Uh, I don't have room for a horse, much less a trailer. You know. So I said, I'm not sure where I'd keep him. And Henry says, oh, you can keep him in Madison. That's where they keep all the bullshit. (laughs) So So then he says, well, basically, all you got to do is buy the front end of the horse. They got the back end in Madison. (laughs) So that was very funny. But now we're rolling dice this whole time and I'm winning and winning and winning. And so I'm super uncomfortable because this is maybe three years into my study and I've heard in this community and other communities and you know, uh, uh, 15 communities In the state, that you all from Madison, you come in, you take all of our money, you leave with it, you know. So I'm really uncomfortable. So I'm trying to joke along with them to probably just make myself feel better. And I say, Well, I come and I ask for your thoughts and I take your money. And Richard says, Oh, I tell you what, that's good though, because we have so little of it. And I say, Well, it all goes to Madison anyway, right? Ha ha ha. And Howard says, We expect nothing less from Madison. And Richard, kind of leans back in his chair and he says, well, at least it won't cost any postage to get it down there now. <laughs> so, yeah, so a lot of times, you know, they're, what they're telling me is super sobering, but it was pretty delightful to, to, to receive it. Okay, so what do we do now? And I say, what now in the sense of just scholars, but people who believe in democracy or want to, um, you know, what happens now? Um... One thing that I am wondering, and I'm sure many of you are too, are, you know, what are these folks saying about Donald Trump right now? And I will confess, I have not had the time to do as much field work since the election as I would like, but I have done some. And my questions are basically, you know, help me understand how you're viewing this president, and do you think that he's working on your behalf? And what I, what I have found most shocking was... <clears throat> and this is from the week immediately following the election. What I found most shocking is that, and this is just two groups, so take it with a huge grain of salt, people don't expect me to do anything for them. Here's what I mean. So I am, this is a different group now. Um, this is a group of people meeting in a, in a warehouse in a tiny town about an hour and a half driving north of Madison. Um, very rural area and they these folks get together every morning over coffee and I said, how do you think he's going to improve life for people around here? And I have to, um, I think, to give you the full dynamics of this I'm gonna represent the speakers with my hands so mm-hmm. there's four different people and um, when I move my hand it's a different speaker so this is me. How do you think he's going to improve life for people around here? We're not sure. Nobody knows. Well, what are you hoping for? Without knowing what his plan is, I don't think, oh, sorry, different person, I don't think no matter what president gets in, it's going to change any lifestyle around here for us. You don't? No, I I don't think no matter what president gets in, it's going to change any lifestyle. I mean, I'm hoping one thing, he gets in there and he quits spending and controls the spending. okay. Because this country can't just keep going deeper and deeper in the hole. Yeah, the spending and the deficit is what is really killing us. So that was Friday morning after the election. The election was a Tuesday. Over the weekend, I holed myself up in one of my favorite spots in the state and processed what had just happened to our world and tried to make sense of this conversation. And the Monday after the election, I went to a logging community in the northwest corner and basically asked the same question. This is a group of folks who meets at a gas station every morning. And it's a very, very low-income community. And I said, so I would love to know, what do you think he's going to do for folks around here? We're used to living in poverty. We're used to it. It ain't never going to change. How many times have we got to tell you that? But you don't listen. And I say, I know, I hear it, I hear it. Um we're used to living in poverty. Okay, but you think he's going to drain the swamp, but it's still not going to help people around here? No, well, it's I'm not I'm not saying it, but you got to try something. And why? Because this country has got to change. It's wrong. And when you got guys around these programs that are driving around $60,000 pickup trucks, it's not fair to people who have gone to work all the while. And when they go out and and do things like he said, he's pointing to someone else around the table, the comment he just made about someone um, living off a disability. It's not right. The illegal aliens are coming in and doing the jobs that those people should be and not paying taxes. You've got to cut them. you just got to cut the strings so they don't got all the free money. So they, they start, if they're hungry, they'll start going to work. You got that right now. I agree with that now. And I'm on the other side of the fence. I vote mostly Democratic. But I would hate the giveaways. I just can't stand it. So I'm still in sort of the making sense mode, and I I need to do more field work to understand that. But I think what they're telling me is we don't expect Donald Trump to really change life in our community, but at least he's going to stop the flow of resources to these groups of people who don't deserve to get all of our hard-earned taxpayer dollars. And I think what that means is, as as the world is, I'm overstating the case, many journalists are asking me, you know, so do people notice, like, who he picked to be on the cabinet? Do people notice that he did such and such? Do people notice that he's not draining the swamp or that he's actually not proposing policies that are going to improve their lives? I don't think that that's the standard by which people are going to judge him. And I think that's useful to know when we think about you know what's gonna happen in the midterm elections, what's gonna happen in, in 2020. Um, we'll see. Another thing I wanna um, bring up is you may, everything that I described, you may be saying to yourself, that sense of not getting one's fair share of attention, of resources that you need in order to get ahead, not getting one's fair share of respect, that's not exclusive to rural areas, right? And that, if you scrape away the details, it sounds very much like what we're hearing among people in our cities in the United States. So then the question, and this is a, you know, an old question, this question of, then why isn't it the case that low on, low, lower income people across the board in the United States see common cause? And ask for something different in their leadership, right? And you know, basically the answer is racism, and that's how it works, right? Racism is a very effective tool for keeping people from forming coalitions. But I think it's uh, it's helpful to to notice it, partly because even among national level politicians, there is a, a debate right now, especially within the Democratic Party, of do we focus our attention on white folks in rural areas and turn away a bit from the attention we've been giving people in the cities? And it seems to me that it's a little bit odd that, that, that isn't an entirely different question, meaning what do we do to address the fact that so many people across the board feel unrepresented and feel as though they're struggling to make ends meet? How do we do things differently? So it's not a question of do we focus here, or do we focus there, but how do we do things differently? To make it right. Um, this this is the, probably the most daunting thing, where I look around at what's going on in so many other places in the world, right? The UK, France, this the, probably those are the most prominent examples at the moment. But I my big worry is, you know, is it always the case that democracy is going to tend towards this us-versus-them politics, in which... We're being sold policies and candidates on the backs of who whom should we should be against in the population, as opposed to being sold policies or candidates on the merits on wh- what they're going to do specifically in terms of change. Um, and I, um, I want to read you briefly something from um, Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural inaugural address. Just to conclude my comments. Because it's been a good reminder to me of several things, so I'll read it to you, and then I'll then I'll say my two cents. Um, this is taking place in 1861 on the brink of civil war, and Lincoln is standing on the east portico of the Capitol in Washington D.C. and he says, "I am loath to close. We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies, though passion may have strained; it must not break our bonds of affection." The mystic chords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. So here I find myself hoping for the better angels of our nature. Oftentimes these days thinking about how can we do politics differently other than figuring out who it is in the population that we hate that we resent, or that we are against. And I'm often looking to our leaders to change their tune. But just before that paragraph, Lincoln said this, in your hands, my dissatisfied fellow countrymen, and not in mine, he's about to become president, is the momentous issue of civil war. The government will not assail you. You can have no conflict without being yourselves the aggressors. You have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, while I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. So I think at the same time that it is time that we ask more of our leaders, it's also a moment when just ordinary folks need to step up and quit teaching to each other who it is that we are against and whom we should hate. And that's my hope for democracy, that we somehow figure that out, but we have a pretty long way to go. So with that sober note, I will thank you and open it up to your comments.
0: So that's it for this series of summer lectures. A big thank you to Kathy Kramer. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, that's me, with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Donselman. This event was part of our America and Global Perspectives series and is supported by the British Association for American Studies and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're the cat's meow. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Tune in next time when we'll be getting back into our usual swing of things with a new episode.